Our scripture today is Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened to the, on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to you, brothers. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the 30th, as I count them, and final sermon in our study through the book of Ephesians. Uh, as I think about this book and where we've been, I can only hope and pray that this series has been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to my own soul. As I can honestly tell you, there have been so many points along the way where this text has challenged me and encouraged me, and I pray that it has for you as well. I also hope and pray that as we have gone through this letter together, that it's helped us to put the book together to understand it better. I think a lot of times what's discussed as expositional preaching is a series of topical sermons that kind of follow the biblical passages, but don't really put it together. And we've been trying to hold the whole text together as we go. And so, I would hope that if we had time and if you had paper and pen and we gave a little pop quiz that you could answer certain questions about this text. I, I, I would hope that you would have a sense of how this text is structured. If I were to ask you what are the first three chapters, you would step back and say, oh yeah, that's the, that's the theology section. Theologians refer to the indicative versus the imperative. That's the indicative section. That's what is true. That section taught us about God. It taught us about Jesus. It taught us about ourselves, right? It was in chapters 1 through 3 that we were taught that if we're in Christ, so if you're a Christian, it's because you've been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. That is a huge, magnificent theological statement that should lead us to rejoice in God's goodness, right? We were taught that we were predestined to adoption as sons. Yes, even the ladies are predestined to adoption as sons because there's this understanding that the sons are the ones who get the inheritance, right? So, so he's saying that we're predestined to adoption as sons. We have a glorious eternal inheritance coming. In fact, we were told that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, a down payment to show us, to make it clear that 
We will make it to the end. We will receive that inheritance. It was in chapters 1 through 3 that we learned a good bit about ourselves too, right? We were told we were dead spiritually. We often think far too highly of ourselves. But this idea of being dead spiritually made it absolutely clear that we could not save ourselves. We could not bring about forward movement on our own toward God. God had to do a work. In fact, the text went further. We were dead spiritually, and it said that we were enslaved. Enslaved to the evil trinity of the world, the devil, and the flesh. We were in slavery. Oh, as unbelievers, we think we're so free. And yet, biblically, we're enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And then we understand that Christ came, right? And he, and, and he goes to the cross. And, and what he accomplishes in and through the cross, for those who believe, he makes us alive, right? He causes us to be born again. And he frees us from our slavery. Through his work on the cross, we were taught that he reconciled us to God and to one another. Remember that, how he brings Jew and Gentile together through the cross, through what Jesus has done. No two people can be so far apart that they can't come together under the foot of the cross. We were saved, he told us, by grace through faith. And in so doing, we have now become God's new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then you come to chapters 4 through 6, and in your mind, I hope you're saying, oh yeah, I I know where that's going, right? That's the therefore. Chapters 4 through 6, he moves into, because of all of that, because of all the glory of your calling, he says, therefore, walk, live, in a manner worthy of that. And thus, He said we were to work hard to maintain unity, right? We have unity within the body. The way he describes it, we're brought into unity. Think about the unity that started within the Trinity, right? Within the Godhead. And we're brought into unity. And as Christians, we are to work hard to maintain unity. He says we're to stop thinking and living like unbelievers. Remember, we've been freed. We've been set free from slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. So he says... Stop living like that. Stop thinking like that. In fact, we are to walk in love. We are now set free so that we can walk in love. We are able, by God's grace, to put the needs of others above our own. Because this idea of love in the Scripture is more than a feeling. That old man Boston had it right. More than a feeling, right? It it is active. It is putting the needs of others above our own. It's serving. We're called to walk as children of light, no longer stumbling about in the darkness. In fact, we're called to walk as those who are wise. Remember, he picked up Proverbs language, not as the fool. We are to be filled with the Spirit so that He is leading us, so that He is guiding us. And we saw that that has effects in our lives. It, it certainly leads us in how we interact with one another. And see, now at the end of chapter 6, he turns and he puts this call to live for Christ in terms of war. He's wanting to make it clear. All of that, it's beautiful, chapters 1 through 3. The therefore, this is what it looks like. And oh yeah, by the way, this ain't going to be easy. Because we have a serious enemy. Thus, he talks about the armor of God. And we hit the first part of this passage last week, ending where you see that dotted line if you're looking at your outline. And before we pick up where we left off, I want to hit a few parts just by way of review as they carry forward into what we're looking at. So let's quickly reread verses 10 through 15. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 15. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day having done all to stand firm. 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So, again, a few things that we want to make sure that we remember from last week as they carry over into our text here. The first is the y'all. Last week I made it clear this whole passage is about y'all. In other words, if you, if you look at the original text, the Greek language is highly inflected, and every one of the verbs, every one of the commands are second person plural. And I point that out because in the West, certainly American Christianity, me, Jesus, and my Bible sort of thing, we tend to make a passage like this, me, Jesus, my Bible, and my armor, as though I'm going to put on my armor and I'm going to go out by myself and kick a little spiritual tail. The reality is if you're doing that, you're going to get your tail kicked because this is all communal. This is all together. This is an exhortation to the church. We put on our armor together. We stand together. You will not stand by yourself. So y'all, got to read that with the y'all. Sadly, it doesn't come through in our English text. We don't have a good second plural. He says, be strong in the Lord. He tells us to stand, 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 stand. If you read the text, right, there's this emphasis there. Be strong, stand. That is the category heading over the whole text. And then he tells us how we stand, we are strong in the Lord by putting on this this armor that he's teaching us about. He gives us a purpose for putting on the armor, and it is so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And that word schemes should help us to be clear. He's crafty. He's deceitful. He's a liar. He's good at what he does. You might recall from last week, we talked about the reality that Satan is not like God. Satan is powerful, but he is not omnipresent. So he can't be over here and over there and over there, right? A lot of times we say, Satan's dogging me. He's out to get me. Well, sort of true, but not really, right? Like we said last week, none of us are probably important enough that Satan himself is probably on you, but certainly his demonic forces. Talked last week about the fact that while not omnipresent, he is the leader of a substantial, well-structured, and highly organized supernatural force whose aim is to make war on Christ and his church. And you see that in verse 12, where we're told we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Talked about how there's a battle behind the battle, and that our battle is actually against, look at this, demonic rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Thus we were exhorted, we were commanded to put on the complete armor of God, and that little word whole or complete, depending on your translation, is not insignificant. We're not to put on part of the armor. A lot of us have certain things within the Christian faith that were sort of our favorites or or whatever. But here, we don't focus on truth without faith. We don't focus on righteousness without being people of prayer and so on and so forth. We need all that Christ has given us if we are going to stand strong in the battle. In fact, in Paul's flow of thought, he's showing us that the armor is the very means by which we stand And last week we focused on the first three of these means, the first three pieces of armor, truth, righteousness, and peace. We talked about how we need to be really careful. The pictures are the content delivery system, but we need to be real clear on the content. And the content was truth, righteousness, and the gospel of peace. And we don't have time to rehash the details of those this morning. If you missed that sermon, I do commend it to you. It's on our website This morning, we're going to focus on the last three pieces of armor, and then we're going to see that prayer is not a seventh piece of armor, but critical to the whole thing. So, look back at your text. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 16. And in fact, let me just start it back in 14 so we follow the blow. Stand, therefore... 
having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The next or fourth piece of armor is faith. Last week we talked about how every single piece of armor is very, very basic, right? This is not armor reserved for the elite. It's for every single believer. In fact, each piece of this armor has been at our disposal since the very moment of conversion. Take faith. Paul's already talked about faith in this letter. In fact, going back to chapter 1, he says that he's heard of their faith, right? So they already have faith. One of the most fundamental passages on salvation in the whole Bible, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. He says it's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. So, so this is something that we have had since the moment of conversion. In fact, when we think about saving faith, it is a gift of God, something God has given us so that we would believe the gospel. Before God did this work of grace, we did not believe that we needed a Savior. But then as a gift of God, we came to believe. So this is something we already have. And yet, like every other piece of the armor, it is something we must daily put on. Remember, this is analogous to the reality that we are already new creations in Christ, and yet we are commanded, aren't we, to put on daily the new man. See, while Christians have faith, an ongoing lack of faith is something that we daily struggle with. Listen, take whatever sin you may have recently committed, or perhaps a besetting sin, something you regularly struggle with. Behind each and every sin is a lack of faith in one way or another, isn't it? It's a failure to believe something about God, a failure to believe something in the Scriptures, to believe something about the gospel. And so the demonic forces, whose aim is to make war on Christ and His people, one of their very schemes is to regularly go after this. And the, the analogy, the picture he uses is that of flaming darts, flaming arrows. In the ancient world, before gunpowder, before laser-guided munitions, one highly effective weapon were arrows that were on fire, right? You might think of the shaft of an arrow and the tip, and, and between the shaft and the tip, often there was these like twisted pieces of, of, of metal with whether some sort of cloth or paper-like substance, doused in fuel of some kind. Anyway, some sort of way of making it highly flammable. It varied from group to group. And, and, and they would light that thing on fire, and they would send it through the air so that when it hit the big wooden door of a fort or whatever they were aiming at, it would set ablaze. And that's the picture Paul is using to highlight the danger of demonic attacks whether persecution, whether various ailments, accusation of sin, bringing intense guilt, false teaching, a whole host of temptation, right? One after another, he launches these at us, sort of a boom, boom, right? You've seen the movies where, you know, they're, they're launching and there's hundreds of arrows going up at the same time, all set on fire, and without the shield, they hit and whoo, starts a massive fire. The shield then, Roman or otherwise, was usually a large wooden shield. Now, there was a second shield, kind of like there's multiple swords. There was a smaller metal shield, but the shield to, to protect against the arrows was, you might think of it almost like a, a small wooden door. And, and yet, and yet, what they would do is they would cover these shields, because they knew this was a tactic, they'd cover these shields with fresh animal skins, fresh because they're not dry, moist like a calf skin, they would, they would cover that wood, and, and then even then they would drench that in water so that the flaming arrow, the flaming dart upon impact would be extinguished, right? It hits and sort of fizzles out. 
This is the picture Paul paints for us of the power of faith in the midst of the enemy's attacks. So think about a few examples. Perhaps you're walking through a trial. Perhaps you're walking through something really, really difficult. And one of the cosmic powers whispers, Jesus doesn't really love you. If he did, he would never let you walk through something like this. Well, without the shield of faith, that could set you ablaze for a while, couldn't it? Perhaps lead you to walk through a season of doubting the goodness of God. Perhaps move you into despair or anger at the very God who sent his son to die for you. Some through this even, quote, walk away from the faith. If they were never truly in Christ to begin with, you might think of soil types 1, 2, and 3 from the parable of the four soils in Matthew chapter 13. On the other hand, consider the shield of faith. That shield that when the arrows hit, they're quickly extinguished. Jesus doesn't really love you. If he did, he would never let you walk through all of this. The shield says, I believe what the Bible says. Sometimes it's hard, but I believe Jesus does indeed love me. He loves me so much, He died for me. In fact, this is really hard, and I'm not enjoying this particular trial, but He loves me enough to call me to walk through such trials that my faith, which is more precious than gold, may be tested and proven all the more true. So I'm going to believe James 1 and consider it all joy in walking through this trial knowing that the testing of my faith produces steadfastness, and I'm going to let steadfastness have its full effect, that I may be perfect, complete, lacking, and nothing. See, that puts out the flame by God's grace. And we could go on and on here because so much of the attacks that we are under are calls not to believe God not to believe the reality of the gospel, not to believe all sorts of truths that we find in the Bible. So the attacks are things like, you're not fulfilled. You should divorce your spouse and find somebody who would be more fulfilling. Find that life you always knew you'd have. You've had a bad day. You can find some comfort in looking at porn. That person has crossed the line one too many times. Yes, you've forgiven. You've done what you're supposed to do. You've forgiven multiple times. But they've crossed it one too many times. No need to forgive anymore. You can just stick it to them now. See, with each of these, we must pull up the shield of faith and say, No, I believe the gospel. I believe what God says about marriage. I don't get my marching orders from the world anymore. I believe what Jesus has taught me about lust. I believe what Jesus teaches about forgiveness and so on and so forth. Think about it. After healing a demonized boy, Jesus told his disciples that if they had faith as small as a mustard seed, they could move a mountain. See, like each one of the pieces of armor, faith is something We've had since the moment of conversion, but it's also something that we must actively deploy every single day, knowing, as Paul's already told us, that the days are evil. So that's faith, a vital piece of the armor. Next, he points us to the helmet of salvation. The picture here is the helmet which we see the messianic warrior of Isaiah 59 put on. There we read, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. The helmet is obviously vital to any armor, be it ancient or modern day, as it protects the head, right? The control center of the human like other pieces of the armor, scholars get in trying to discern sort of an either or on this one. And so here the question is, is Paul speaking of present salvation or future salvation? And in other words, is he speaking of the salvation that we enjoy right now so that there's an emphasis on present forgiveness? We've already been forgiven. Present deliverance from Satan's bondage, right? We were enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Chapter 2, praise be to God, we've been saved from that, and thus we don't need to fall back into that. Or, is the emphasis more on future salvation? That is, 
the confidence that we have in the fulfillment of our salvation in the last day, that confidence that no matter what's going on in the here and now, we will be resurrected, we will have new glorified bodies, we will rejoice for all eternity in our glorious eternal inheritance, the new heaven and the new earth, with God forever, like we've seen with the other pieces of armor. It's almost certainly both of these aspects, as both of these aspects serve as a helmet for our heads in this battle, don't they? Think about it. Our salvation, yes, has already been accomplished, and there are many times where we need to draw on that. We do need to remind ourselves, no, I don't have to go back to slavery to the devil. I've been, I've been set free from that. But closely tied to that is the reality that final salvation is also assured. Jesus has promised us that the gates of hell shall never prevail against His church. We can be sure nothing is going to stop His church. And we can be certain that for those who are truly born again, nothing can take us away from our salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I think this is a glorious cross-reference here. Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Think about some of the warfare now. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, Ephesians 6, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. See, the helmet is getting at the assurance of our salvation, which is so critical to the battle, isn't it? Right? That is something that Satan wants to go after. Thomas Brooks, the English Puritan, talking about the importance of assurance, said, the being in a state of grace makes a man's condition happy, safe, and secure. But the seeing, the knowing of himself to be in such a state is that which renders his life sweet and comfortable, end quote. Satan would want us to doubt our salvation all the time. And we need to remind ourselves that we are saved and that he cannot take it away. And this actually leads right into the final piece of the armor, which is the Word of God. And let's again remind ourselves how basic all these things are. And, and, and here I want to point out just how they're working together. And, and working together, it's a picture of just living out the Christian life. Think about the belt of truth. Where, where do we learn truth? The Word of God, right? Is it not the Word of God that teaches us the gospel? The very gospel that we preach? Right? Is it not the gospel whereby we understand that Christ is our righteousness? Is it not the gospel that we understand that the entailments of the gospel are to live righteously? And I point this out because this is really a call to actively, daily, purposefully live out the faith we've been called to live. This is going back to chapter 4, verse 1. This section is a picture to help us see how important it is for us to walk worthily of our calling. And the Word of God is a vital part of this. And thus, the last piece of the armor that Paul exhorts us to deploy on a daily basis is the Word of God, which he says here is the sword of the Spirit. So the picture's the sword. It's a sword the Spirit wields. And by the way, this Word-Spirit connection by now in Ephesians should be no surprise to us at all. 
Back in chapter 5, you'll recall that he exhorted us to be filled with the Spirit. And there we looked at a comparison of Ephesians 5 and the parallel passage in Colossians 3. And we saw that these passages were basically identical in their flow and structure, except they had a different category heading. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we talked about how that's so important for our understanding because the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. We actually went back to one of the most foundational teachings on the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible, John chapters 14, 15, and 16, where throughout Jesus teaches us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not about the new and the novel. The Spirit of God takes that which is of Christ and He, and he massages it deep down into the souls of His, of his people. Now, the Word of God was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers the understanding of the Word of God. He works through the Word of God. He convicts His people of its truth and thus leads us in putting it into practice. And thus, here, the Word of God is indeed the sword of the Spirit. Now, again, commentators debate, is this to be used on the defensive, like we see with Jesus in the wilderness? Or is it to be used on the offensive, as we share the Word of God with people, and thus closely tying this to the shoes of the gospel of peace that we looked at last week. And I would answer this by saying it is at least both, and probably a third category. Think about it. We absolutely use the sword defensively, don't we? Right? There are defensive maneuvers with a sword. I already mentioned Jesus in the wilderness. I love John Piper's fighter verses. These are a set of Scripture memory verses to help you to have in your heart and so that when you're, when you're assaulted by various things, right, we can go to Scripture. Uh, he, he's got passages, not just what we would think. We often think of just certain things that we're tempted with. But he has passages on the goodness of God, right, where we need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. Uh, to me, thinking about using the Word of God defensively is incredibly helpful. One thing that I've struggled with through the years is being anxious over things not going my way. I, I, I'm a pretty strong-headed guy. I have certain things that I think should go certain ways, and they don't often go that way, which can lead to anxiety. And I need to remind myself, oh yeah, Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let my request be known to God. So that the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, can guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So the Word of God is most certainly used on the defensive. But it's also offensive, right? You think of the work of the sword. It's also offensive as we share Scripture with those who are lost. I love 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. There Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. How are you going to destroy strongholds? Not in the flesh, right? He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. Of course, the Word of God is vital to that. And to be sure, we're sharing the Word of God when we're sharing the Gospel. But we go beyond that, don't we, as we're digging into a biblical worldview. Uh, this, we can be on the offensive whether we're sharing with an unbeliever who needs to come to Christ or a believer who's struggling, right? That's offensive maneuvers as well, pointing them back to the Word of God. I also think, and here's the third category, so offensive, defensive, I think it's also preemptive. Think of warfare. Oh, vital part of warfare, I would argue, is building the biggest, baddest military you have. Was it Ronald Reagan? Quoting from Teddy Roosevelt, I believe, said, walk softly, but carry a big stick. Right? I mean, we're swinging the sword of the Spirit every time we pick up the Word of God and read it on our own. Call it your quiet time. Call it your devotions. I don't care what you call it. We're swinging the sword of the Spirit every time we gather in small groups. Be it, you know, church small groups, family devotions, youth ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry. 
We're swinging the sword of the Spirit when we gather in small groups and we talk about the Word of God. And we're certainly swinging the sword of the Spirit every time we gather on Sunday morning, right, for the preaching of the Word. Especially when we remind ourselves, the y'all, this is a communal thing. We're putting on the armor together. See, we've often over-spiritualized these things. But here Paul's saying that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling by putting on the armor of God, these basic Christian realities, putting them on every day. These basic Christian realities of truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. And there's so much more we could say here, but I want to get into what is a vital part of this battle according to Paul and its prayer. Look back at the text, verses 18 through 20. Notice the comma at the end of verse 17, if you're reading an ESV. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. While some translations start a new sentence here, the ESV is absolutely correct, making this dependent on what goes before it. Like the ESV translation, in the original, this is a participle. It's hearkening back to verse 14. Stand, therefore, we said the the pieces of armor are the means, stand by putting on and stand by praying. Prayer is not a seventh piece of armor, right? He He doesn't come up with a new piece of armor here. He's he's showing us that it's actually vital to deploying all of the armor. And I want you to notice five things about prayer. Four of them governed by the word all. All, all, all throughout that, right? One, we pray at all times. Two, only one not governed by all. We pray in or by the Spirit. Three, all kinds of prayer. Four, keeping alert with all perseverance. Five, praying for all all the saints. Let's take each one of these quickly. We are to pray, he says, at all times. Elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5, he exhorts us to pray without ceasing. It's interesting, right? Because because Jesus also teaches us to get alone, to set aside time to pray, to get alone in our closet, close the door where nobody can see you and pray. And it's not one or the other. Sometimes I hear this dichotomy, you know, I don't, I don't have sort of a prayer time. I just have sort of a spirit of prayer throughout the day. Well, that's good. But why'd you cut this? Jesus clearly said to have that. Or sometimes we say, well, I don't pray throughout the day. I pray, you know, for an hour in the morning. Well, that's great. But if I take one big deep breath in the morning, it's not going to get me through the rest of the day, right? Yes, I need a focused prayer time. Jesus clearly taught that. And I want to go about my day in a spirit of prayer, right? We are in a battle. That's Paul's point. He's, he's, he's trying to up the ante and make it clear how important this is. Listen, lots of young kids in this church. I'm going to just paint you a picture. Fast forward a few years to where these young kids are big kids, and they're off at war in World War III. And you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that they are in a battle right now. It's not peacetime. They're not kicking it in the fort, texting back and forth with you. They are in battle right now. My question would be, are you praying for them? (laughs) Ha, aren't you? Like every minute, Lord, protect them. Would you keep them safe? Would you help them to be wise? Paul says, pray at all times. This is war. The stakes are high. He tells us that we pray by the Spirit. Ephesians has been so gloriously Trinitarian. We pray in or by the Spirit. Just a few verses earlier, he says, be strong in the Lord. In Ephesians, typically when you see God, he's talking about the Father. Lord, he's talking about Jesus. Spirit, he's talking about the Spirit. Right here, we're to be praying by the Spirit. He just said be filled with the Spirit. 
We talked about the picture that's probably best there is like wind in a sail, right? Your sail is filled up, and thus the Spirit is leading you along. And that's true in prayer. The Spirit leads us in praying. He leads us to pray. When, when you think, oh, man, I need to pray, that's probably the Spirit prompting you to pray. The Spirit leads us in what to pray, right? And so we're to pray by the Spirit. We're to pray all kinds of prayers, I agree with P.T. O'Brien, this all prayer and supplication is sort of a short form way of saying all kinds of prayers. We're thanking God, we're praying for ourselves, we're praying for others, yes, and amen, do it all. He says, keeping alert with all perseverance. Remember Jesus said, watch and pray, watch and pray so that you may not fall into temptation. He said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, prayer keeps us on the alert. The disciples, and sort of a picture of that in the garden, you know, just snoozing. Watch and pray, says. That's us. So often we're just snoozing through life. And Paul's saying, watch and pray. Keep alert with all perseverance. Right? This isn't something we gird up our loins for two weeks because we heard a sermon on this. He's saying, with all perseverance, carry this into our lives. And then he says, praying for all the saints. Praying for all the saints. I'm challenged by that, right? On Thanksgiving, we looked at one of Paul's prayers. We saw how others-centered Paul is in prayer. Talked about the reality that so many of our prayers, if you, if you looked at the actual prayer agenda, if somebody recorded your prayers and showed you the prayer agenda, it's probably like me, myself, I, maybe my spouse, me, a little more I, Maybe the kids a little bit me, some more me, a lot more me, a few people in the church me, right? Well, not knocking, praying for ourselves. We, we need to. My most common prayer is probably, Lord, I need help. <laughs> help, please. Please. All right? That's good. We should do that. But we don't stop there. Paul says, pray for all the saints. This whole section's a y'all. This is communal. We pray for each other. In fact, Paul, Paul shows us the way, doesn't he? Pray for all the saints and pray for me, he says. And like we said last week, he doesn't ask for what we might think. He says here that he's an ambassador in chains. We know that Paul is in a Roman prison writing this. So let's notice what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask for prayer to get out. That would have been fine for him to ask for. He doesn't ask for his own circumstances to be better. Also, that would have been fine for him to ask for. But just notice that he doesn't. He, he asks for prayer for boldness and to make the gospel clear. Boldness and to make the gospel clear. And I think that should help us to think about how we pray for one another. Lord, I pray for Andrew. Would you help him to be bold in this situation that I know he's going into? I pray for John. Lord, I, I know he's talking to his neighbor. Would you help him to be clear? We need that kind of prayer. I need you to pray for me that way. I want to pray for you that way. We want to be bold and we want to be clear with the gospel. Right? The gospel is not always received well. We know that. One of my friends talks about crossing the chicken line. We need to cross the chicken line. And we need to be bold and we need to be clear. We need to share the bad news. Because you know there's no good news without bad news. We must share with our friends that they are sinners. And that they do deserve and are heading for the wrath of God. Right? That's being bold. And we want to be clear that God is a God of grace and sent His Son Jesus. Who went to the cross to bear the punishment for those who would believe. So that you wouldn't have to endure the wrath of God. And so let me just pause. You might be here this morning and you're not yet trusting Christ. I'm praying for you that the Lord might open your eyes even now. And I'm exhorting you, look to Jesus. According to the Bible, the Bible says outside of Christ you're in slavery. And I know that might make you mad, and I'm sorry, but it is what the Bible says, that you're enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. But you don't have to stay there. Jesus came to set you free. He came to set you free in the here and now, to set you on a path of living for Him, and that He's going to take what He started and bring it to completion. 
and save you for all eternity. But you've got to look to Christ. You've got to believe. You've got to, as Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. So friend, I'd plead with you to look to Jesus today. Well, Paul ends this letter, like all of his letters, with a final greeting. Look back at the text. He says, so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Remember, he's writing from prison, and so Paul's sending Tychicus to deliver the letter along with an update as to how he's doing, no doubt so they can continue to pray for him and pray for gospel advancement as Paul waits to stand trial before more Roman dignitaries. Think about the opportunities before him. So he says, pray for me. He then ends much the same way that he started with key things that we've seen throughout this book with a greeting of grace and peace and love and faith. And as we wrap up this letter, I want to end by kind of just stepping back for a couple of minutes and putting some things together. And again, consider why Paul ends the letter the way he does. Paul began this letter with the truths of the gospel. In point of fact, you could say that the first three chapters were full of the armor. Truth was there. Righteousness. The gospel of peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Faith. Salvation. The Word of God. By the way, there were two model prayers there, right? One at the end of chapter 1, the other at the end of chapter 3. In chapters 4 through 6 then, he's been walking us through application. How do we live in light of these realities? And then here at the end of chapter 6, he's used this metaphor to highlight this ain't going to be easy. We have a real enemy who doesn't want us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so Paul puts some of the basic realities of living for Jesus in terms of this wartime picture. The armor itself, we've been saying, is very basic. We've had it at our disposal since conversion, but we have to use it. We wouldn't imagine a group of Navy SEALs getting suited up, getting ready to hop on the chopper to be carried into battle, and and they walk into the room where they get changed, and all their armor, you know, their, their flak jacket and the helmet, their armor's over here on this table, and all of their various weaponry over here wouldn't imagine that they just walk right past that and hop on the chopper in their shorts and t-shirt to go into the battle. It's unthinkable, but it is what we often do. And so as we think about the armor, as we think about deploying the armor, perhaps the first place we need to begin would be with a real moment of honesty, honesty with ourselves, honesty before the Lord and to repent of our failure to engage. Maybe we need to repent of our lack of prayer that we just talked about, such a vital part of the battle. Maybe we need to repent of our lack of gospel engagement or or, or our failure to pick up the shield of faith in the midst of just a discouraging season that we're in. Or maybe it's our failure to employ the Word of God. We've got 10 of them sitting on our shelves, but they're getting a little dusty. Wherever you find yourself, know this, the enemy and his demonic hordes do not want this message to hit home with you. They're fine if you've zoned out, not really paying attention. They're they're even fine if you experience a few minutes of conviction as we sit here, but do nothing about it. What they don't want and what we must do is for us to deploy the armor even now and move into a lifestyle of daily deploying it. What do I mean? Well, perhaps you've been in a pattern of prayerlessness. Demonic forces would like for you right now to feel guilty about that as you sit under the sword being wielded, so guilty that you despair. You might even be telling yourself something like, I stink, I'm worthless, it's just it's what I do, it's my pattern. 
But that's no good unless it's countered with truth, righteousness, faith. See, the point of conviction of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to repentance. I think that's probably an easy way to tell whether you're dealing with conviction of the Holy Spirit or fiery darts of demonic warfare, because both cause a level of pain. The fiery darts lead to feeling badly, shedding tears, perhaps thinking worse of yourself, maybe even some self-hate, an intense level of discouragement, but no change. Conviction of the Holy Spirit can be painful as we have to deal with our sin, but it leads us to the foot of the cross, right? Think about the armor. It leads us to reminding ourselves of the righteousness of Christ. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I stand clothed in Christ's righteousness. Leads us to seek the help of the Spirit in putting that sin to death. Yes, I've failed, but I'm believing the gospel. And He also leads us to do it together, right? He leads us back to the y'all because we're not going to make this on our own. So, friend, as we, as we finish this glorious book. I pray that we will take this seriously. Right? The Christian faith is not something that we sort of tag on to the rest of our lives as is often put forward in American Christianity. It is the very center of our life. We have a glorious God who has been so gracious to us, and He's told us what He expects of us as a result of who He is and what He's already done. And here He's also let us know it's not going to be easy. So may we hold fast to Him, hold fast to one another, pray, and by God's grace, persevere in living for Him and glorifying Him in all we do. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us everything we need. And Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus. I thank you for calling us to yourself. I thank you for calling us into a local church where we can minister the gospel to one another, where we can sing like we're about to do, encourage one another through singing and praying and reading your word and talking about your word, and I pray that you would grow us in being a faithful church, grow us in being a useful church for your kingdom, for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.